Welcome to the Southwest Climate Outlook podcast, brought to you by the Southwest Climate Change Network and the Climate Assessment for the Southwest, more affectionately known as CLEMAS, both at the University of Arizona. Today is October 24th, uh, and we're going to discuss uh, the latest on climate and weather here in the Southwest. And that us is, uh, is me with two climate experts, Dr. Greg Garfin and Mike Crimmins, both researchers here at the University of Arizona and members of, of CLEMAS. I'm Zach Guido, staff scientist for CLEMAS, and today uh, we'll be focusing on the drought, uh, the water supply situation, looking forward uh, for the, the winter forecast for precipitation and temperature, and, and probably a lot more. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. Okay, so I think uh, it's appropriate to start where most people um, start in the Southwest, and that is with, with drought. Um, so I'm looking at a few drought maps here, both of Arizona and New Mexico, and both of the states are nearly covered completely in what's called moderate drought. Um, most of New Mexico also has what's called severe drought. And so I think I'll start with you, Mike, if you could just provide us with a summary of, of how we got here and how out of the ordinary we are. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. We have some some pretty maps here across the Southwest, and we've had some pretty maps here for, for uh, I think, almost two years now. I was looking at some data on the last couple of weeks, and we haven't had drought-free conditions anywhere in the Southwest in over, I think, about 18 months. And <clears throat> it's about a two-year process that's gotten us into the current drought conditions that we're seeing across Arizona and New Mexico right now. So we've been in drought for, what, what now, eight, eight, nine years more or less? Maybe actually probably since 2000 more or less? Yeah, I think you can look, it depends on again where you are in Arizona and New Mexico, but you can trace it back to just about 97, 98, which was when we had our last pretty good El Nino winter. And since then, we've just been falling behind in uh, winter precipitation in particular. And that's really where the deficits have been mounting. You know, the monsoons have been up and down. Most of them have been down. This last summer was pretty good for Arizona, but but really uh, fell short in New Mexico. So you, yeah, you could really say since the the late '90s that we've been we've been falling behind. Right. So here's actually the map that I was looking for. Uh, it's the last three years percent of average, and nearly all of Arizona has been below 80, uh, 80, 80 90 percent. And New Mexico is actually in a in a more dire situation. Some of the areas south southwestern New Mexico has been been around 50, been between 70 and, and 50 percent of average. So, so it's it's been uh, it's been more of a winter phenomenon than than a summer phenomenon. And so, Greg, I'll, I'll, I'll pose the question to you: will, will, will the drought ever end? Well, of course, but it also depends upon whose drought it is. Mm -hmm. You know, seasonal precipitation, as Mike mentioned, it's it's varied, um, and certain parts of the state have had good rains in either the winter or the summer over this period since. Uh, 1998. So I mean, you know, we had we had years like the winter of 2004-2005, which bailed out a lot of Arizona anyway, um, except for maybe the southeastern part of the state. So you know, again, it depends upon whose drought it is and what kind of decision-making horizon you have. So if it's if it's short-term, occasionally you'll get bailed out. If it's long-term, you know, really long-term, like the, you know, very large reservoirs, Elephant Butte, uh, Lake Mead, Lake Powell, um, 
you know, still, still some reason for concern. I think that's been kind of the interesting thing of, of watching the drought here for the last 10 years is we've had a lot of these um, just in the nick of time precip situations where a place will get just enough to sort of make it look okay in the short term and sort of nudge things along. But there's been that creeping crud of long-term drought that's just been everywhere for the last uh, 10 years or so. But yeah, you know, I, I had the chance to speak with some farmers in Southern uh, New Mexico a couple months ago. And, and uh, like you said, Greg, Elephant Butte has, I believe less than 5% of uh, full capacity right now. And I believe the, the, the irrigation water allotted to those farmers there is, is, is completely gone. Um, and so the, the water situation in certain areas is, 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 is quite dire. And should, I guess the question is aside from those people and aside from perhaps uh, some of the other um, areas that have uh, low storage, who, who's in panic mode right now? Are people, is, is there great concern? What kind of sectors are, uh, are paying close attention to how drought evolves? Yeah, well, that's a real loaded question. Who's in panic mode? (laughs) I can't vouch that anybody's in panic mode, but I would say that if you're an irrigator on the lower, uh, or the uh, the New Mexico section of the Pecos River, those reservoirs are really low. They, they, um, when you mentioned this percent of normal precipitation map for the last three years, well, that's been really dominated by the 2011 drought that hit the Southern Plains and has persisted uh, through this year. So, you know, that, that uh, part of New Mexico, uh, reservoirs are low, uh, you know, water allocations cut back there. Uh, sent the middle Rio Grande, and especially as you start heading into um, to Texas, uh, in the Mesilla Valley, places like that, where you done your interviews, yeah, for sure, um, they're concerned. If they don't, you know, if, if we don't have a good winter in the headwaters of the Rio Grande and the Pecos, then people will be panicking. I was just going to say that the, um, that's the tricky thing with drought down here is, you know, it, in, in the Great Plains, it can stick out pretty quickly, right? You know, you get a, a month of no precip in the prime season and stuff just doesn't grow. Down here, we're, we're built for drought. So it takes a bit longer for some of these impacts to emerge, and it creeps up on you. And I think that that's one of the, the big challenges we're dealing with now. Like looking at this past summer, a lot of ranchers I've talked to, depending on where you are, in Arizona in particular, got plenty of rain, um, grew some good grass, and grew some, grew some cows. So they're okay with situation. But, you know, if you talk to fire managers, um, trees are really starting to feel this longer-term drought conditions creep up on you. And unless you're really paying attention to trees, like fire managers or ecosystem managers, that's who I think we're starting to, they're starting to get more concerned as this thing dra- drags on over time. You know, even you get a good season here or there, that's still not enough to keep some of these ecosystems going. Yeah, and I guess I'll, I'll chime in here. Um, uh, for those of you who are listening and not looking, <laughs> um, I'm looking at the uh, NOAA Vegeta- Vegetation Health Index map. And the conditions in southern New Mexico, eastern New Mexico, and northern uh, Chihuahua and Coahuila in Mexico are about as bad as the worst drought areas in the country, which is uh, in South Dakota and Nebraska at the moment. 
So, you know, again, if they don't get good winter precip there, I think we're looking at a couple of things. There's, you know, the bad range and ag conditions. Mm -hmm. Wildlife, too, would be affected there. Fire, New Mexico had the largest fire on record last year. The previous record was set the year before in two different parts of the state. But we had a situation back in 2002 where Mexico could not deliver their uh, portion of water to the Rio Grande. And you know, if, if we've got a, a, um, an El Nino that doesn't produce in, the, uh, in northern Mexico, we could end up with another situation like that. And a situation where New Mexico can't pass on enough water for their obligations to um, Texas and Mexico. Mm -hmm. Well, I know when I was in New Mexico, people were cued into what El Nino or what La Nina was ultimately going to do. And this was, this was in mid-July mid when I believe there was some prospects that there was going to be a, an El Nino on the horizon, um, which seems to have faded away. Right, Mike? Oh, boy. What a humbling summer. And uh, yeah, I mean, where we are as far as our science and our research and our forecasting capabilities and our monitoring capabilities, um, you know, we had a pulse on a, a developing El Nino in mid-July that, that, you know, all the, the things were coming together in the Pacific Ocean that if you were to just let that thing roll forward, we would have been into, you know, at least weak to moderate El Nino conditions by this time. But um, as soon as it came in in July, um, it, it faded again um, in August and continued to fade. And we're at the point now where it's borderline conditions and the models are really having a tough time of trying to decide whether or not we, we even keep weak El Nino or we just go back to neutral conditions. I have three points on that. So one is if you look at the subsurface water, there's a, a pocket of, of you know, very warm water progressing across the Central Pacific. And presumably, and we saw that there was a packet of, of cold water coming through and that's emerged in the Eastern Pacific. So I wouldn't uh, count El Nino out. Mm -hmm. The second is that we've got some westerly winds in the Central Pacific, which is always a, an indicator of a developing El Nino. So again, wouldn't count it out. And the third, is that there was a paper that came out in the late 90s or early 2000s by Marty Herling and Arun Kumar. They looked at where the center of the El Nino activity was. And then they also looked at the strength, weak, moderate, strong. And it turns out that, especially for Arizona, uh, weak El Ninos can deliver uh, a lot of precip. Yeah, I've been following the Climate Prediction Center's forecast discussions and I'm tuned in in a couple of their briefings of late. And it, and it was really interesting to watch them um, try to deal with this pretty strong signal they were going to use as a forecast signal in July. And then as it weakened and weakened and weakened, they had to sort of back away from it. And they sort of shifted their emphasis to using some of their forecast models. And the, the forecast models that they were using um, really sh showed this kind of weak El Nino-ish type patterns showing up. And what it was, it was a, a tiny enhanced amount of precipitation, wintertime precipitation that kind of came through northern Mexico, again, very weak, and came up through um, New Mexico. So it, it would be look, would kind of look like a weak El Nino situation and, and pretty dry from 
Central California up to the Pacific Northwest. And as that's gone forward, that, that the models have had less and less to work with. So they've sort of punted on this um, idea and have gone back to um, real high levels of uncertainty. They're using a lot of this, this language in their, their most recent discussions saying, we're not really sure what we're going to be dealing with. And one of the things, Greg, you're talking about is they, they noticed the subsurface um, warm temperatures in the, in the mid-Pacific, and they thought that the models were picking up on that, and they think that's going to move forward, but they don't think it's going to last very long. They think this thing is going to peak in December and be done by as early as late January. So, And they also mentioned that the atmosphere is not noticing a thing right now with this, with this event, that there's no coupling between what the... And really, for this thing to move much further forward, the atmosphere has got to get in concert with the ocean. So, and that's really of consequence to us because if the atmosphere doesn't notice the El Nino, then the El Nino doesn't really matter because that's the only way that we're going to get any, any type of major shift in, in circulation and get us some, some precip down here. So I, I, I'm kind of leaning back going, I think it's, you know, we're in this really humble spot of not really knowing um, what's going to happen over the next three, six months. So I, I guess that does raise a, a question for me at least. Without a strong ENSO signal, it's difficult to predict such things as, as precipitation. So what can, without ENSO, what can, what, what can we look for? I mean, what are we looking for to, to, to hedge our bets here? Is there, is there anything or are we, sitting in, are we sitting in the dark? Well, you know, I guess it's, it depends on what you do with your forecast, right? How good does your forecast need to be? Or do you just sort of, you, you try to make the best decisions understanding what an Arizona or New Mexico winter could be like? Great, but for somebody who's, you know, trying to talk up the use of climate information, you know, it's it's a difficult thing when all you really have to hang your hat on is, is ENSO, and when ENSO doesn't materialize, you're sort of left in, in the wanting. I think it's a humbling part about being part of this whole climate science endeavor is that um, there's a lot of stuff we do know, but there's a lot of stuff we don't know as well. Yeah, <laughs> you know, really, for for our seasonal forecasting without ENSO, it's a um, it's a vacuum. Yeah, it, it really is. And we, you know, we just have to own up to that, yeah. as Mike said. I think I think the mo like the client the seasonal the computer models used in the seasonal forecast, people are getting more comfortable with them. We're we're getting more and more data to actually do verifications on them. So I think our confidence will grow in it. But again, you know those those need strong. Um, strong signals in the ocean and the atmosphere to look forward from, right? And if there's mixed signals like there is right now, lots of mixed signals, um, they, they can't make something out of nothing. And that's, I think, really what we're dealing with right now. So this is an opportunity to talk about equal chances and, and what the heck that actually means. Yeah, so this is, this is one of those things that everyone loves to hate. It's the, the equal chances, the big white areas on the NOAA seasonal uh, outlook maps. And you know they they there's we'll find these maps with a lot of white space when, as Mike mentioned, the forecast tools, be they statistical or dynamical models, uh, just really aren't lining up, and there's a lot of divergence uh, and little skill, and we're in one of those situations now, and it would be criminal of us to say, you know, based on you know, one single model or, uh, you know, some guess that it's going to go one way or the other. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, this I, is just 
a lot of a lot of variability out there. Right. I mean, it, 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 we forget about how far we've come with forecasting and the idea that we can even with these forecasts of opportunity when El Nino or, or La Nina lining up can have a pretty good look into a three to six month window future and actually make a prediction on that. I mean, that in itself is pretty amazing. Yeah, but I would say, you know, for the winter, uh, EC, you know, for, for October, November, December forecasts, EC is probably pretty rare in our part of the country. Usually there's the, those forecasters have something to say. And it's because of the skill related to uh, the tropical Pacific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it, again, I think as Greg said, if you look back over, you know, 20 years, um, there's a pretty good chance that the, um, there's some signal to work with in this period of time um, and that there would be a forecast made. And, you know, there's tools like the forecast evaluation tool that you could go back in and mine out some of these statistics actually. Well, so I would, so here's, here's, here's an interesting thing. So if, if, uh, if you're looking for an alternative and you live near the border, Look at the Mexican forecasts. They're totally statistical forecasts that it's a very, um, very sophisticated statistical algorithm that they use. And, um, you know, you might get some insights. Uh, and they, they've been, they have a good track record too. But it's probably worth saying uh, as we're wrapping up here that even though there isn't a lot of skill in, in what we can say moving, moving forward, it, doesn't mean that we're not going to get rain. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the equal chances is, remember what that means, is it's an equal chance of um, below um, average or above average precipitation. You're just rolling the dice and any of those things can happen within it. And, you know, and if we think about, av- if we just hit average, um, that's a handful of events and it's, you know, it's a, a decent amount of precipitation. Again, but, you know, will every place, it, will it rain everywhere? No. Will some places do really well? Probably. Will some places fall behind? Absolutely. Well, well, we'll visit that next month. So uh, thank Greg Garfin and Mike Crimmins for joining me on this podcast. And uh, we'll come back in a month and, and talk about what we, what we saw in the last month and, and look forward again. Okay, so if you're interested in, in tuning in and hearing us online, uh, we'll post the, the podcast on the Southwest Climate Change Network website, which is southwestclimatechange.org. And it will also be on the Clemus website, which is www.clemus.arizona.edu. And Clemus is spelled C-L-I-M-A-S. Thank you again and see you next month.